Hello and welcome to another episode of Yesterladies. Yay! Yay! <laughs> we haven't done that in a while. I think. <laughs> it's back. It's back. Great. <laughs> uh, so, Heather, what are we talking about today? Well, Dana, we are talking about a very interesting woman named Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. And if you have never heard of her, you have probably benefited from her life uh, without knowing that. Uh, she was the woman who um, cells were taken from to develop the most commonly used cell line ever in history. Mm-hmm. So she's had a massive impact on science, even though she did not necessarily give consent for this to happen. Uh, we'll get into all of that. But her life has had um, a huge impact on science. So. Absolutely. And uh just want to kind of point out, this is, um, Henrietta Lacks is a little bit unusual for us um, because it's not so much what she did with her life or accomplishments that, um, that she had, it's more kind of what was done with her after her death, which is kind of cool and unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a little bit of a departure for us, but she is still kind of maybe from a different, for a different reason than most of our other kind of topics. She is still one of the most important people in history. Um, because as Heather mentioned, her kind of um, unwilling gift to science <laughs> has allowed, I'd say, probably most of the major um, mm-hmm. breakthroughs in medicine over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. There was an unprecedented um, increase in scientific um uh, discoveries and experimentation uh, due to her biology. Yeah. Um, so we figured we'd talk about her. She's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, so uh, Henrietta Lacks was actually born Loretta Pleasant. And I don't, did you find out at what point or for what reason she changed her name to Henrietta? No. Um, I think the book that I read, so I read uh, a very well-known and recent book uh, called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and this is by author Rebecca Sloot, and we'll get into that later. But she goes into quite a bit of the family history and Henrietta's personal history, but I don't remember all the details, so I think she touches on it. But uh, she also said that during her research, even Henrietta Lacks was spelled many different ways, mm. and she found her um, listed under different first names, and uh, mm. and so it was sort of in the research around her, uh, her, even her name got scrambled. So I can't remember why if the, if she talked about why the name got changed. But yeah, yeah. See, this is kind of illustrating something we were kind of talking about before we started. That mm-hmm. um, again, Henrietta Lacks, and it kind of reminded us of um, um, Sacagawea in that. She was a person who, unfortunately, for kind of social historical reasons, she wasn't considered at the time important enough to really have much taken down about her or said about her. So we don't know maybe as much generally as as we might about some more kind of prominent people, read white men. <laughs> um, but uh, that doesn't make her her life any less important. So there may mm-hmm. be some, some gaps kind of in what we know about her as a person or personally, but I think that just serves to remind us all that, you know, everybody's important and that, you know, just because somebody, there isn't a lot of information out there on them. It may not be because they didn't do anything worthy. <laughs> worthy. It's, it's, you know, very often because of literally who they were, whether right. it's their, their race or their religion or their gender or whatever else. Right. Um, and the social categories that they fall yes. into kind of determine 
how much of their life gets recorded or, mm. or yeah exactly mm. we wanted to point that out because we noticed that in our notes when doing the research for this we had sparse notes on Henrietta herself and, and her life and her life before her death and then sort of after that it's like oh there's lots about the science and you know what happened to her cells after her death but um we wanted to address that to make sure that we, we kind of touched on the fact that we wish there was more information about her and yeah. and yeah. I mean that information it is out there, but, uh, like her family still survives. She's right. got children yeah. still alive. Yeah. Um, but uh, unfortunately she, she died at such a young age and I think her children would have been so young. They probably don't have very strong mm-hmm. memories right. of her personally. Um, so I think the, the people who are around, I don't know if her husband is still alive or not. Mm. Um, but the people who are, were around who, who could tell us more about her personally are, you know, there's not that many of them because she really had a very short life, unfortunately. Um, so briefly, she was born in Roanoke, Virginia in uh, 1920. Uh, and then she died at age 31 uh, in 1951, unfortunately, of uh, cervical cancer. Uh, but before then, just a little bit of her of her backstory, what we do know. Unfortunately, it, it doesn't sound like a... I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, she sounds like she had lots of children and, and kind of a strong family life but you know some of the details of her life are are not i don't know what necessarily we would wish for ourselves in a lot of mm. ways um her mother passed away when henrietta or i guess at the time loretta although we don't really know when she changed her name so i don't know uh we'll, we'll just refer to her as henrietta uh her mother died when she was four years old and at that time, she was, I don't know if her father was in the picture at all, but she was sent to live with her grandfather in a log cabin that had been slave quarters of a white ancestor's plantation, which mm. let's just let that sink in, that whole horrid right. mess of a Situation. history. Right. Like that's just, it's super, I just find it super depressing that like yeah. they're living, you know, she literally, she has a white ancestor. <laughs> and whose, whose property they're still living in yeah right, where previous generations of the family had been enslaved and yeah that's talk about oppression yeah it's just, <laughs> or, or potential always, oppression well yeah. yeah and that always really wow. got to me that element of slavery that so many slaves had um white fathers right um ancestors right. and you know they're living with half brothers and sisters yeah um who are who are free and they are not yes i always find that really disturbing it's very disturbing yeah i've read um accounts of slavery where the black offspring are compared in appearance to the white offspring and they'll say oh you and you know Susie or whoever you look so much alike and it's just chilling to think about that yeah Yeah. and the differences in their futures just because of uh, parentage and race it's it's yeah it's very horrifying yeah so this is kind of an echo of that this is obviously post-slavery but still very much in kind of jim crow era and uh so anyway so she's living in this uh previous slave quarters log cabin with her grandfather and apparently she shared a room with her cousin david uh who also went by the name day um, and, uh, interestingly, <laughs> I suppose, um, she had a son by him. Um, so first of all, they were first cousins, which, you know, the, there are, you know, that's, it's not the Throughout worst Throughout history thing. That, that's happened very commonly. Yeah. Right? And I mean, even it's not, it's, it's not, not illegal, uncommon today yeah, and it's, it's not true. super uncommon. Yeah. Um, 
it's you know we're not here to judge no (laughs) right um but so anyway first of all he was her cousin and second of all um more importantly (laughs) they had their first child together when she was 14 (laughs) so they had a son lawrence in 1935 and then a few years later a daughter elsie in 1939 and then uh, loretta or i should say um uh, Henrietta and Lawrence were married in 1941. At that point, at a certain point, they moved to Maryland mm-hmm. um, and had three more kids. And I think you have a little bit more about what was in Maryland and why they moved. A little bit. Um, before they moved, I wanted to point out back in Virginia when she had her first two children, I remember very vividly a description in the book talking about how um, there was no health care or at least there was mm. no health care that they were accessing or could afford. And so she, Henrietta gave birth to her two children on the dirt floor oh of their log cabin. And it was basically whoever could attend the birth, you know, whatever local midwife would come. And I, I don't even remember if they had anyone attend, but I thought... Whoa. You know, that was very striking. Like, oh, well, you give birth at 14 to your first child on, on the floor of your floor. family's home. You know, it's this issue of rough. access to health care mm. as well is something that will kind of yes, crop up again. Up and later. There's a kind of irony <laughs> yes. in that, which we'll, yeah. we'll discuss further, I think. Right. So, um, and the family was a, a tobacco sharecropping family. So everyone in the family worked hard in the fields um, this raising is, tobacco. This is when they were still in Virginia? This is when they were or? in Virginia, right, correct. Yeah. And uh, so Henrietta and Day decided to leave that lifestyle because they were hearing about better jobs up north. And that's part of a, a large cultural shift at that mm. time with a lot of um, uh, particularly black families moving north for um, industrial opportunities and manufacturing opportunities. So uh, they heard about work uh, further north and so they ended up moving to Baltimore to an area called Sparrows Point and it was a community that had grown up around the steel mill um, located there so a lot of the workers were living in housing just outside of the mill and it seems like kind of a bleak location mm-hmm. um, you know it was it was n- not a high income area and um, you know a lot of there could be a lot of alcoholism and violence and and you know the things that come along with with um, some communities in the area and uh so but they they really seem to kind of make the best of it as a young couple and and as a young family and other family members were were uh, moving there from their hometown and sort of from around the country and uh i liked the details about henrietta that talked about how she was so welcoming and Mm. and really um, they had a really strong family network because you had to at this time, right? Um, like you only had family to rely on. And so relatives would come in or cousins would come in from wherever they were coming from, um, um, probably in the South. And uh, they were sleeping on their couch and she was sending them to work with meals when they got a job with day and this sort of thing. And so she was really kind of this den mother to the extended family as well as her own kids. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a very, a very loving and a very kind woman. So That's great. yeah, I liked reading those details about her. Um, so as as I said, they ended up having five children total. And now, um, unfortunately, their second child, Elsie, um, was developmentally, developmentally disabled. And as I think was probably pretty common at the time, especially for lower income families that, you know, probably couldn't afford either the time or the money to, to care for her. Um, she was put in a place called, this is just Lovely. the worst sounding, the <laughs> oh, worst God. title for yeah. Uh, yeah. an institution ever. The Hospital for the Negro Insane. <laughs> so this, <laughs> and now so that's no, you know, okay. On so many levels. <laughs> you know, those terms were terms that were just used at that time. And, uh, you know, I think it conjures up an image that is, you know, rather medieval. You're picturing like 
dank cells with like hay on the floor and people just right. you know left to right to rot. Uh, I I assume and I hope that in the 1940s uh, institutions <laughs> like that were were better than that. Right. Um, so uh, you know, insane hospital was unfortunately oh, the term they were still using, but I imagine it was something hopefully closer well, to, to what we would know as a, a maybe a more modern, uh, kinder yeah. institution. Um, uh, I do remember some details from the book that unfortunately, uh, oh, painted no. a pretty stark picture. So, um, the author, Rebecca Skloot, when she was researching the book, um, did a ton of legwork on the ground to, to track back, um, the family's history. So she visited the former site of this hospital and, uh, and it still exists, although not as, not as an hospital, the hospital for, for the, the insane. Negro insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't play that role, but she, it was a very funny passage in the book where she sort of just like walks in, like there's no security. And she was looking for the archives to see what she can find about Elsie, um, lacks and, uh, just sort of like is poking about and, uh, and looking for someone like some employee to, to help and, uh, ends up in the archives and eventually does find someone who lets her in. But, um, she's looking up these files and she realizes that there were medical experiments going on on the children in the facility, um, completely without consent. And this included things like lobotomies (gasps) and like just really, really awful stuff. Um, I take it back. Yeah, I know. So while they may not have been like chained and groveling and Hey, it was, there was definitely, or there were definitely horrible things going on. Yeah. Well, that's great. And so she, she asked, you know, do we have any proof that this was happening to Elsie specifically? And they, and the curator of the the records there was basically was saying uh, because he had seen it in so many of the patient's files, he said there's basically no way to assume or we, we just have to assume that it happened to everyone because it was just so prevalent that there would be no reason that it wouldn't happen to her. It's you know, sort that's of the gist of interesting. Again, it's the yeah. issue of um, consent, consent yeah. in medical mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. which is you know is still uh, an ethical issue which again we'll we'll talk about but mm-hmm. i think you know elsie um lacks was part of a particularly vulnerable right. population, population lower income exactly. african-americans yep. at that time yep. and i think with a disability, with the disability and, and uh, underage right and, underage. and with no so, immediate guardian yeah. and she was she was the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. And, and I think is, the people in charge would have, wouldn't right. have given it a second thought that they could right. just do whatever they right. wanted, which is, and this was happening to everyone there, but I guess everyone there would be in the same boat, right? would be well, in the same categories. And it, yeah, yeah, it was a hospital yeah. for African-Americans. Right. right. Oh, well, that's boy. very depressing. So, sorry, listeners. <laughs> this is a really dark one. Today. So far. Yeah, unfortunately, so far. It's, I hate to say it, but it will get a little, a little, in some ways, brighter right, uh, right. after um, poor Henrietta has died. Um, but we have yet to get through that, yes. unfortunately. So as I said, she was only 31 when she passed away. Um, in January of 1951, she went to Johns Hopkins, excuse me, Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, with ab- abdominal pain and bleeding. And she was pretty quickly diagnosed by a Dr. Howard Jones with um, cervical can- cancer. It sounds like it was a pretty advanced stage. She did mm-hmm. have some treatment. She had radiation and surgery, but by October of the same year, so less than a year later, she she passed away on October 4th of 1951. Um, and just, I, I was reading, there's a really good Guardian article um, that we'll definitely post along with this episode. Uh, and I think it, I think it's written by... Rebecca's clue, or if it's or no, it's not written by her, but it's kind of about her while she was doing press right, for right. for her book, and um, 
it it refers to the fact that well Henrietta was in the hospital um it sounds like she was there for quite a few months and of course the family would would come and visit her but some of the youngest children they wouldn't let in to see her which is already heartbreaking mm-hmm. and i guess there was a park across the street um and uh day would would take the kids there to play and Henrietta would, um, she would press her, she was in terrible pain, but mm-hmm. she would, she would insist on getting out of bed and pressing her face to the window to see her children, which I'm going to like burst into tears yeah. in a second. Yeah. I put that one in my notes too, because no. it was such a, oh, a heart wrencher, yeah. you know, she knew she would never get to see them in person again. And, oh, it's, <laughs> it's awful. Yeah, it's really, it it's really, really, it I mean, really anybody, yeah. you know, dying of cancer and anybody dying of cancer at 31. Right. Like that, yes. Yeah. Goodness. Um, with five children and a young husband. Um, so as I say, she passed away. Unfortunately, her daughter Elsie survived not even a year after her. She passed away. I don't know. Do you know what she died of? Perhaps Mm. medical experimentation? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but, um, so, you know, it's a little, it feels odd to me. We're only, you know, like 17 minutes into our, our episode here and we're kind of <laughs> life is over, more or less right? done with Henrietta Lacks's life, um, her traditional life. But <laughs> as we will see, uh, her life kind of went on in a, in an unusual and unexpected way. And it's a very complicated, there are a lot of ethical issues here and, and, um, the Lacks family, as we'll see, has, has been through a lot with, Mm. with all of this. And I can't imagine they must be extremely conflicted over all of this. Very much so. Um, But it can't be denied that Henrietta, um, the way she lived on has certainly saved countless lives. Right. Um, Because um, I I read two differing accounts. One said, um, or I guess it was, no, it was when she was um, in surgery at a certain point, um, doctors, uh, while well, she was still alive, took two samples um, uh, of tissue from her tumor and put them in the lab. And then after she had passed away, this uh, lab researcher, Dr. George Otto Gay, um, noticed her cells had an unusual quality in that they were far more durable than most other cells. And they would... Um, they would most human cells and they were trying at this point, they knew that if they could, if they could get now bear with us with the science, (laughs) (laughs) but they knew that if they could, if they could harvest human cells and get them to, to live and kind of reproduce, they could do all sorts of experimentation that obviously you couldn't do with a living patient, (laughs) exposing them to things and, and manipulating those cells and even just seeing what cells did. Right. Uh, so they had been trying, but every time they would try harvesting cells from a patient, um, they would die within a few days. Right. They would reproduce it, I think, a few times. Yeah. And they would have isolated examples that would last, I think, the longest up to that point had been like a couple months. Mm. And then eventually, but eventually they all petered out. And usually quite quickly, as right. you're saying. But there was something about, but something about Henrietta's, Henrietta's cells. Yeah. And before we go on, of course, we should point out the fact that uh, these samples were taken from her completely without her knowledge or consent, mm-hmm. um, which was an 
and is, often still cur- is yeah, currently is um, standard practice standard practice yes, yes. Yeah. kind of just the way things are done right and that's in both the u.s and the uk mm-hmm. and so i believe canada also i have I would imagine no reason to, to assume otherwise in canada mm-hmm. but as long as you have signed a general consent form uh, before going in for a surgery your tissues are available to doctors and researchers um worldwide basically mm-hmm. um it can be banked and it can be used for any purposes without your knowledge um and this is just the way it works and um, and i don't know it's a very yeah it's not necessarily a, a good thing or a bad thing it yeah. seems shocking in this in this example yeah but it's also been going on so long and it's such a, an established think, part of medical science and so we're really kind of on the fence about yeah about the I mean, idea yeah that's just it and i mean this is these samples are very much needed for, for right. medical and right. scientific yeah. research and obviously we've we've as you say we've advanced in in countless ways because of this um i think what and I think we'll, again, we'll talk further about this as we go on. But um, one of the things that, one of the aspects of this that bothers me mm. is pharmaceutical Correct. and medical companies making right. um, a, a great deal of right. money. Yeah, huge money um, off of these cells. Of, yeah. Yes, when the yeah. people who, who basically donated these specimens, you know, aren't even aware, don't mm-hmm. see any of Absolutely. that, which... I don't know. There, it's a very complicated ethical issue and there's right. arguments made on both sides, but that feels pretty squeamish right. to me. That And I think a lot of our listeners would probably agree that yeah. there's one, it's one thing to have your tissues used for medical science and for research, and it's a completely other thing to have them used to make huge profits for corporations um, yeah. without any any you know pay back to the family or the donor or, or even acknowledgement or, yeah. or knowledge. So that's when it starts to get... Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so as I say, this, uh, Dr. Gay, um, noticed this unusual quality with Henrietta cells. So he isolated and multiplied a specific cell and he created what is called a cell line. And that's as much as I know about what a cell line (laughs) is, which is awful. Um, and he called the sample HeLa, H-E-L-A, um, from her name, which, I don't know. That's kind of cool. I thought it was neat because it's well. right there. It's kind of right there, right. you know. Yes. So at least some of her identity resides with the cells. You know, I kind of yeah. feel like you get a little tag. So I did ours, Dana, because it's the first two letters of your first name and the first two of your last name. So mine is Heger, and yours is Daco. <laughs> Ooh. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I thought yours was catchy. Yeah. Deco. I still think Henrietta Lax's is better. Hila. Yeah, I agree. Kind She's of, got a great one. It yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Um, so basically, Hila ended up completely revolutionizing medical research. Um, and I've got, I've got a list, um, and kind of the first big thing was, uh, Jonas Salk used it to develop the polio vaccine, which of course is absolutely huge. Um, and it was kind of after that, that scientists really started paying attention to this, um, uh, cell line and, and using it for all sorts of things. And by 1955, they cloned it as demand grew and it is still used today yeah, and it's, absolutely. you know, and it's kind of mutated and used in different forms, but it's still used right. today. Uh, yeah. And, um, from within my reading, it was talking about how you can go to any lab today and there will be HeLa cells. cells. Like, yeah. 9.9999 times out of 10, there'll be HeLa cells in the lab. And they said they're everywhere. They said any experiments you've done in university, if you're a science student or you know, if you're a medical researcher or if you're a doctor, it's, it's so, so likely that you've been working with HeLa cells. It would be almost impossible to work in medicine or science without with interacting yeah. with HeLa cells. So everyone who has worked with cells basically ever owes a, a debt of gratitude it's to Henrietta. astounding. And, yeah, it's wild how how global and mm. um, 
far reaching mm-hmm. uh, the impact was. Yeah. So, so she was described as the first immortal human cell line in history oh, wow. because her cells have continued to replicate to this day yeah. without stop and and virulently like they're they're so I'm sorry um, what sorry <laughs> it's very well it's very slurred virulently <laughs> virulently <laughs> sorry awesome sorry um, <laughs> so and there's some speculation about why that is and mm. are you gonna get into that or do you want me to no you okay. should get into it okay so um no one really knows why Henrietta's cells have this amazing quality to just continue uh, replicating without end. Um, and of course, researchers have tried to look into this, but uh, the best guess anyone can can make is that it has something to do with how um, how strong, how f- basically ferocious her tumor was. So her cancer mm. tumor was very aggressive, very fast growing. Um, and so they said, well, you know, it's obviously linked to that in some way, but, uh, Henrietta also, Henrietta also, unfortunately suffered from syphilis. Mm. Oh, I did um, read this. And so they weren't sure if that was, um, something that was contracted sexually or something that, um, you know, that she was contracted at birth, this kind of thing. They don't, they don't know the background, but there's some speculation that the combination of those two of the cancer and the syphilis, perhaps there was some effect from that. So, um, that's kind of the best, best, best we guess. have right now yeah. as to why, why Henrietta sells, right? Why this just regular woman from Baltimore in the fifties, you know, turned out to be this immortal cell donor. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. So I've got a kind of a list okay. of just some of the ways yes. um that the HeLa cells have been used. So as I said, the first big one was the polio vaccine, which is right there. That's kind of good enough. Like she <laughs> could have stopped there. <laughs> Still thousands been... and thousands of lives saved. Yeah, yeah or improved. Uh, but they were also used in the development of chemotherapy, uh, cloning, gene mapping, in vitro fertilization. Uh, her cells have gone to space mm-hmm. for uh, <laughs> testing and uh, scientific research there. They've been exposed to nuclear testing. Um, they have been used to test all sorts of medications, including anti-tumor medications. Uh, they have very much furthered our understanding of HIV and AIDS. Um, they've, as I said, they've kind of, they've helped develop, uh, virology, the, the study of viruses, um, methods of freezing cells for storage, uh, standardized me- methods for culturing cells. Um, what else have we got here? There's a lot. Uh, methods for accurately determining the number of chromosomes in cells, which is beneficial for cancer research. Uh, used to study the effects of radiation. Uh, oh, this is cool. Used to study the effects of deep sea pressure. <laughs> uh, used to test safety of cosmetics and pharmaceuticals, replacing lab animals. Mm-hmm. Hurrah. Um, used in research on what causes aging, uh, used in studying the effects of salmonella and tuberculosis, uh, used to determine that HPV causes cancer, helped to develop treatments for Parkinson's disease, influenza, leukemia, and hemophilia. And those are just (laughs) some of the ways that her cells have been used. That's the short list. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's incredible Mm. the amount uh, of benefit that has come out of these, these cells. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, <laughs> kind of, you know, going on from this, uh, over 10,000 patents to this date involving HeLa cells have been registered, hmm. which I, again is astounding. Wild. And I read a stat that talked about, um, that her cells have been reproduced 
so much and there's such a volume of cells existing today that there are enough to wrap around the earth three times. I saw that. Think about how microscopic (laughs) one cell is and how many cells it would take to even be visible. That seems incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. Um, I remember hearing about, I I listened to the book actually on audiobook. So rather than reading about when I heard about, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, um, reproducing her cells, uh, they talked about having basically vats of like a medium that they would use to grow the cells. And there'd be these huge churning vats of just Vanrilla. Yeah, it was it was wow. wild and also gross. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, it is really gross. Sorry, <laughs> it's like he's just hu- bubbling human tissue. You know, oh. it is. I'm sorry, but it is once again like something out of Doctor Who. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but very very cool. At yes, the same time. very cool and sciencey. But uh, gross. so well, all of this. So as as we said, um, this began in in the mid 50s and. Well, for like 20 years, while all of this was going on, the Lax family had absolutely no idea. Yeah, not the faintest clue. Not the faintest clue that all of this was happening with their mothers, um, who, by the way, had been buried in an unmarked grave. This is a very um, poor family. They couldn't afford much. Um, and again, as I say, this is this is a very poor family, which meant that they, <laughs> through all of these years, have had not nearly enough access to medical care, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things, um, I guess when Rebecca Skloot went and tracked them down and, and found, I think it was one of the sons that she talked to and he kind of made the incredibly astute point that, well, you know, it's kind of incredible that all of these medical advances came from his mother, um, when, they lacked access to health care. Right. And no one in the family had health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't afford health insurance, yet their mother cells are making incredible breakthroughs all over the world. And making pharmaceutical companies insane amounts of money. Huge amounts of money. Yeah. So but there's where it gets. The stat I read from 2010 was that vials of her cells were selling for about $260 US per vial. And that was, you know, six years ago. So I'm sure it's only gone up since then. And the Lax family is not getting a penny of the profits <laughs> from that. So so the Lax family only actually found out about all this in the 70s because a scientist contacted some of the family members looking for blood samples and other genetic materials. I guess partly they they needed more something about the Gila um, cells or the sample or whatever had kind of become mm-hmm. compromised or degraded in some way. And so they were for whatever reason, they were looking for more material, genetic family right. material. Yeah. yeah. The line was contaminated and so they had to go back to the source basically mm-hmm. to figure out what the contaminant was in all their lab. And even, and- even then, uh, that scientist or those medical professionals did not fully explain no. to the Lax family exactly why they wanted these samples from them. Right. And, uh, the one daughter, what she understood of it, she thought they were testing her for the same cancer that her, had killed her mother. Right. So she apparently waited for months, um, afraid that she was going to get a call telling her that she had this deadly and aggressive form of cervical cancer. Right. Nobody explained to them, which it, exactly it makes me very angry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, I agree. And yeah. there's, there's talk in some of the research we did about how there's this disconnect between the, the medical community and basically like science with a capital S and, mm-hmm 
common people yeah. and, and the, the language and the barriers to that. And they said, you know, if you were to go into the hospital and you don't speak English and you need a translator, someone will come in and translate for you so that you can understand what you're being told. But if you speak English, but you don't understand the medical um, linguistics or, or medical language um, being being spoken, um, you have no idea what's going on and that they're, they almost need staff available to help translate like medical ease to English. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. Right. Most right. of us. I mean, I mean, that happens to me, right? You go right. to the doctor and, <laughs> right. and sometimes feel like you don't quite get what they're, <laughs> what right. they're telling you. And we're, we're well-educated people. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have, you know, a slight advantage in, in that situation that, uh, you know, many don't. So, yeah. so, so as I say, in 1973, the Locks family, began to understand in at least a certain measure that their mother had this strange afterlife that they knew nothing about. They still though, as I say, didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't quite very well explained to them. And I think they ended up trying to figure out what was going on. Um, eventually, um, the whole thing ended up getting more and more attention kind of started in 1998. Uh, the BBC did a documentary that won some awards and gave some more visibility to the topic. Um, and then of course in uh, 2010 and up leading up to then, I'm not sure how long it took her to do her research, but Rebecca Sklute became interested. It sounds like when she was a student in school, uh, her biology teacher explained, um, that these cells that were used in labs all over the world were called HeLa cells and they led to all of these developments and they were taken uh, from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. And, uh, Rebecca wanted to know all about this woman and all her teacher knew was that she was African-American and that she had died of cervical cancer in the early fifties. Uh, so Rebecca ended up, uh, pursuing a career in science and in biology and she got her, she earned some degrees and, and went on about that. And then eventually continued looking into this, this case and, um, did, it sounds like just a, an amazing amount of research and tracked down the family and learned Mm -hmm. all about, um, this, uh, this, uh, life, this Absolutely. life of Henrietta Lacks. And in 2010, she published the book that Heather has been referring to the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which has gotten quite a lot of attention over the last few years. Absolutely. It's won over 60 awards, um, across the nation and, uh, has actually been a huge catalyst in changing the way the Lacks family are treated, um, and their relationship with Gila cells today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we'll get into that a little bit more when we close, but, um, uh, it's it's been hugely impactful on their life and of course on on Rebecca Sklu's life as the author. And um, I was really impressed though when I was listening to the audiobook version of the of the book um, of how close Rebecca became with the family and mm-hmm. how much time she spent with them. I really appreciated that she was very she was very open and and authentic and talked a lot too about her own prejudices and she was coming from science so she kind of represented you know doctors and the medical establishment to them and it took her years to gain the trust of the family and she never truly gained tr- the trust of all the members of the family um but she became particularly close with Deborah um one of Henrietta's daughters and they ended up taking road trips together <laughs> and and spending quite a bit of time together um and by the end of the book Deborah has passed away mm. um and it's really quite touching to to see the relationship that had grown up um and it's kind of this little microcosm of you know hopefully the relationship between the family and and you know, sort of science using HeLa cells can improve, mm-hmm. but uh, you know she really put in the work um, did, to yeah. to um, 
get to know the family and find all the information she could and dig up a lot of the information that wasn't readily available. And at one point they take a road trip to the town where uh, her mother was born and they talked about how a lot of the town had just been bulldozed Mm -hmm. to the ground. It was just a small town and, uh, and so many people had moved away that eventually they just bulldozed it and all that were left were the concrete pads of where all the stores and homes used to be and and like you said Henrietta's grave is unmarked so they're they're just guessing there's a memorial there now but um you know they're just know guessing exactly yeah where she is. was and it's this weird sort of like wiping away of the history of the family and hmm. uh, yeah it's it's kind of interesting it is yeah so as heather pointed out the book definitely had and i mean you know as we say there were several things kind of in the last 20 years or so that um that have led to more visibility um, on this topic. But even so, uh, the family has had some success gaining control of the Gila strain, but limited Mm -hmm. success. Right. Um, And there's a statement here that um, Johns Hopkins, uh, which of course was the original hospital where Henrietta went and was diagnosed and where her samples were taken. Um, And they put out this statement in 2010, which... I don't know. I, I want to just read it. It's interesting to me. Um, I don't know. They don't quite go far enough, I think, here. I mean, it's an interesting statement. They take some responsibility, but mm. I mean, it's a, it's a sticky issue. But uh, So, Johns Hopkins Medicine sincerely acknowledges the contribution to advances in biomedical research made possible by Henrietta Lacks and Gila cells. It's important to note that at the time the cells were taken from Mrs. Lax's tissue, the practice of obtaining informed consent from cell or tissue donors was essentially unknown among academic medical centers. Sixty years ago, there was no established practice of seeking permission to take tissue for scientific research purposes. The laboratory that received Mrs. Lax's cells had arranged many years earlier to obtain such cells from any patient diagnosed with cervical cancer as a way to learn more about a serious disease that took the lives of so many. Johns Hopkins never patented HeLa cells, nor did it sell them commercially or benefit in a direct financial way. Today, Johns Hopkins and other research-based medical centers consistently obtain consent from those asked to donate tissue or cells for scientific research. So it's an interesting mm. kind of measured statement that right. acknowledges some things. And I mean, it is, as we talked about it, it is a complicated issue. And we're not, right. you know, right. I, I think... I don't know. I don't think that necessarily we should we should not be ever taking cell. I don't. I don't know. It's. It's. I don't know what I <laughs> yeah. think to be yeah. honest. And school gets into that in the book where she talks about how how it would slow down medical research um, to have to obtain consent mm. or to gain consent for every time you want to go further than what people have expected. You know, sort of mm. your general patient thinks, well, maybe there's some, some medical research that could happen, but if you have to go further than every time you need cells, you have to track down uh, the original donor and gain their consent and explain every possible procedure, you know, every time. I mean, research ethic boards uh, exist for a reason and, and that's a very good thing. But, you know, any scientist can tell you how arduous the process is and, and how conscientious you have to be. And, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But the, she was also talking about how complex and how even more expensive medical research and, and medicines would be to produce if that were the case. And so, you know, we can see both sides of the story. You're kind of stuck um, in situations like this happening where people's cells are taken and, and then all of us benefiting from the, the speed and the ease of that. So, you know... We can see both sides. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sticky one. Yeah, um, in, the, in this specific case, it is rather 
horrifying um, to a degree because uh, as Skloot found, uh, just about every member of the Lax family um, has medical issues, right? Rather major, major medical issues. Medical issues right. Yes, absolutely. And as we said, they have not had good access to medical insurance and right. and good health care, and that's rather galling. Given yes. again for yeah. me how much money yeah. has been made, it's so cruelly ironic yes. that that would be the case. Absolutely, and yeah. I feel like someone could just step up and offer health insurance, you know, like which, which of these dozens of organizations, oh, hospitals right. and pharmaceuticals and all of these companies that, that are benefiting either financially companies. or, or informationally, you know, from information. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, what, like at least one of these, or they could all sort of chip in to offer um, healthcare to the family, either the existing members or all future members of the Lax family. I mean, yeah. that's crazy. Like, I mean, it couldn't cost that much to cover one family, you know, when, so. when companies can do this for their employees and just as a goodwill gesture, mm-hmm. you know, for all well, especially the years when, benefits. So the Lax family has been kind of honored and recognized and Henrietta specifically, of course, in quite a number of ways. Um, so, I mean, which is all well and good and absolutely she should be acknowledged and yes. they should be acknowledged for the contribution. But as you say, I mean, anyway, we will go, uh, into some of those. So, um, a lot of organizations that have benefited, benefited or profited from Gila cells have since publicly recognized her contributions, including, um, the family was honored at, uh, the Smithsonian at a certain Mm -hmm. point and the national foundation for cancer research also honored them. And then one detail that I found, I mean, it's nice, I guess, but kind of, uh, to me, a little bit kind of pointless given the other things that, as you say, maybe it could have mm. been done for the family. Uh, Morgan State University granted a posthumous degree to Henrietta Lacks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that does seem rather oh, odd. Yeah. Like maybe free tuition for her descendants. Right? Or something, like something you would think that would, that would be, be a little more practically I mean, helpful. Like, yes, absolutely. She she needs to be recognized. Sure. That's just yes. part of it. Yeah. And it's, it right. bothers me a little bit, kind of some of these gestures that don't seem to go along with much practical... <laughs> oh, Sarah's got something to say. <laughs> you may have noticed that uh, our youngest yester lady is uh, with us again today. <laughs> um, but anyway, as I say, Morgan State University, um, I-, I guess it's nice <laughs> that they gave her a yeah, posthumous degree. Those, like, nice I don't know what the degree was in. Terribly. I hope it was in biology. I hope biology. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, or... Think science. I don't know. Yes. Ethics. I, I, I was just gonna say <laughs> medical ethics. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that would be also rather ironic. <laughs> yes, I don't know. That might be not such a great thing for their PR. <laughs> um, so, as we have been saying, the cases raise questions about the legality of using genetic materials without consent, um, and even to this day, as we said, this is still an ongoing issue. And uh, in 2013, for example, some German researchers published the genome of a strain of Gila without permission from the family. Right. Um, although generally. Um, by this point, again, there's a 2013 agreement. So I don't know if this, these German researchers were, this was prior to or after this agreement. Um, but there was an agreement in 2013 with the National Institutes of Health. Um, they granted that the family would be acknowledged in scientific papers and would have some oversight of the lax genome. Now that I don't know what that means. Some mm, oversight is pretty right. vague. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that practically plays out, how much say they, they have over how it's used, but. Absolutely. And it could be quite invasive to have 
you know the genome sequence published that is so close mm. to your own right i mean mm-hmm. um you know a lot about the child people. of her or the grandchild of henrietta then yeah you know a lot of your dna is out there and yeah it's yeah. a man is it ever a complicated issue right yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh but the book by author rebecca Sloot um is fabulously interesting mm. and i was riveted the whole time i was listening to it so we highly recommend mm-hmm. that if you'd like to hear more um, absolutely it's on my on my list yes oh yeah so many books on that list yeah. and, uh, <laughs> we both have I... pretty much immortal <laughs> book lists uh, uh, pretty much <laughs> <laughs> more books on our list than he lost sells in the world yeah. <laughs> more oh, than boy. i will ever than we'll ever get to i'm yes. positive but this is one that i certainly intend to get to yes. um, before too much more time passes and yeah i would absolutely encourage you to read this book and uh and maybe learn a little bit more about mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Uh, there's consent far more to learn yes in this the book than uh, we can cover issue. here right yeah absolutely so I don't know. I don't have anything more, Heather. Do no, you? I'm good. All right. Well, I guess that brings us once again <laughs> to the end of Yesterladies. Um, so thank you once again for listening. We really do appreciate it. Um, as you know, I hope by this point you can contact us um, by several means, including Twitter, where our handle is at Yesterladies. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Yesterladies. You can email us at Yesterladies at gmail dot com <laughs> I'm trying to make Heather laugh with my. I would like to point out that Dana is doing a sort of dance, a seated dance while she reads I feel like all of I've these. Kind of half memorized this has, little spiel yes, that exactly. I um, And of course, you should visit us at our beautiful website, yesterladies.com, where, of course, you can find all of our episodes as well as resources that we have used uh, to research our topics. Um, and in terms of the podcast, of course, I hope you know by this point that you can find it uh, on iTunes or on whatever podcast app you use. And I will say one more time, as we say every episode, um, please do write in um, and let us know what you'd like to hear from us. We have got some great audience suggestions coming up. And oh my gosh. I was just going to say we forgot to mention. Oh my God. So this episode, uh, this topic, Henrietta Lacks, was suggested to us by a friend of of mine, Danielle Wynn, who is a wonderful librarian, an academic librarian. I think she's in Montreal now. Oh. Danielle, you have to write in and, and contradict me if I'm wrong, but she <laughs> is absolutely awesome. And she is a very lovely and effusive listener. And she has suggested Henrietta Lacks. So this is actually the first time that we've yes. recorded a audience suggestion and we want to do way more so please yes, we're delighted keep them coming to we want to know yes. what you want to hear about absolutely absolutely so i have been dana and i'm heather and thank you for listening see you next time see ya